As is my want, you notice the whiteboard is out this morning, and I'm going to pull that out. Hopefully you're okay with that. I always feel like I have to ask people's permission for a whiteboard because my wife makes terrible fun of me in that I, I, I love this thing so much. She says that I have a single addiction in my life, and that's a whiteboard. And if that's my only addiction, you and I will have to agree that that's not too bad of a thing, right? All right. The marker works. We're all set. Um, I want to read for you the same passage. It's Hebrew, I'm sorry, James chapter 5, 13 and following that Tim read for you yesterday, last week. And this is literally the sermon entitled The Prayer of Faith 2. It's the same passage. It's a different pastor. And it's a little bit different angle. And we're going to focus on the how-tos of this passage a little bit this morning. So if, turn in your Bibles if you want to, or you can look on the wall behind me. James 5:13. It says, Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain forth, and the earth produced its fruit. May God bless the reading of his word. I am going to put some words on this whiteboard. Uh, as I said, I like this thing. It's my favorite tool as a pastor. Um, you know, I have a journey group that I'm leading at the Phobias, and I have moved the whiteboard from my office to the Phobias, and it's there all week, every week, and I just pull it out when I get there, and they've graciously let me do that. Phobias are wonderful people. Uh, these are the words we're going to talk about this morning, and uh, when we're done, we're done, and then Tim's going to come up and share. It's kind of a, you see my name in the bulletin, but we're both sharing this morning, actually. The first words are first fruits. And I'll explain that as we go. The second word that I want to put up there is request. The third word, and most of these you'll see in the passage itself, confession. Not one of our favorite ones. And then righteous. And then down below, I'm just going to put one more word, normal nature. Okay, I guess that's two more words, but it's one line. Can everybody see that? Everybody's okay? All right. So I have to tell you that across, across my life, prayer has not had a huge emphasis. My dad is a Baptist minister, and we agree in our family that prayer is pretty much a new thing. We prayed, you know, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep, you know, that, that prayer. You've, you've heard those kitty prayers. And we had the prayers before dinner, and we had the prayers before church, and we had the prayer for this, and we had the prayer for that. But they, they tended to be kind of methodical prayers, just a line or two, just kind of in the same places in our lives, regurgitated prayers that we kind of repeated over and over again. And the fact is that prayer wasn't a major emphasis. We didn't, our church did not have prayer meetings. The Wednesday night prayer, there was no such thing. My dad was a pastor of a church plant. Most people had been a Christian for maybe six months to three years, and uh, there was only 20 of us, so it was pretty much a small group in and of itself when I was little, and, and people didn't necessarily engage with this thing called prayer, and my dad didn't necessarily engage with it. That changed. That changed, and I, I'll tell you, it changed through a couple different things. One, uh, I had an uncle who was involved in Christian ministry, and I watched his life just go out of all 
connectedness for a minute with the Lord, and things just seemed to fall apart. First his marriage, then the ministry, and it affected my family dramatically. And you know, there's something that happens in a family, and you've probably had this experience where you expect something out of one of your loved ones, and it doesn't work out. And you watch, I watched as my grandparents were, my grandfather was a pastor, my grandmother was the traditional church pastor's wife, and, and they together just could not handle this. I mean, it was a tragic experience for them watching their son have this terrible moment and go through divorce. And so the, there was this whole process by which what had happened in our lives so far had not gotten us ready for that moment. There was a tragedy, and it wasn't the tragedy of losing somebody. It was a different sort of tragedy. It was the tragedy of somebody maybe letting us down or a situation letting us down. It, it caused us to stop as a family. I remember thinking about it. We, we started at that moment to think differently about God. We had to. We had been sure that God was the God of the moral. Maybe we needed God to be the God of the forgiving. And we started to encounter a God who we realized, even in the pages of Scripture, was slightly different than the God that we had grown up with. And it wasn't just me experiencing this as a high schooler. I'll tell you, my parents talk about this. They believe it as well. And then I'll tell you that the next thing that drove our family to prayer was my younger sister. And I have her permission to talk about this, but she walked apart from God. Of all the kids in our family, we have four. I'm the oldest. She's the youngest. We're nine years apart. We're very close today. But one day, it was as though she woke up and said, anything that's on the wrong side of the tracks, anything that's on the wrong side of the fence is more attractive than anything in this family. So, you know, you can put a check mark next to all of the things that you fear that your kids or grandkids will do. You know, you, you know the list. She did it. She's told me that. Some of those things I didn't even know. And when she was here last year, she and her new husband, and they were sharing with us what was happening in their lives. And she started to say, you know, back when this happened, I said, what, what, what do you mean that happened? And she would tell me stories. All of a sudden it came out. Well, I was engaged in this sort of behavior. And it was the sort of thing that as an older brother, I would have been just grief-stricken to know my sister was doing these things. God got a hold of her in a powerful way as my family was driven to their knees and they started to pray. But it was a communal sort of prayer. We started to become people of prayer. The last thing that I think impacted my family, just specifically my family, was my mom got cancer. And for those of you who have been through that, most of us have lost a loved one or experienced a, a, a kind of a painful battle with this thing called cancer. It was an amazing moment where we gathered as a family and started to pray. And I think our family drew closer, and we started to realize that we could only trust in God in that moment. We could only trust in God. Frankly, trusting in my dad, he, he, he completely kind of started to melt down in that moment. His wife was no longer impervious to this terrible disease that so many of us fear. And so prayer became a very important thing in our lives. You can, you can kind of feel that. And maybe in your life you've experienced this thing. I think tragic moments, difficult moments like the ones I'm describing in my family. And by the way, I'm close with my uncle. I'm close with my sister. We have good relationships, all these people and I. But today, those things that we're talking about, those painful realities, I look back and I realize those are the things that either drive us closer to God or we tend to, in those moments, pull away from God. We either go close or we go far. So James has some words for us, and they're directly related to this. James chapter 5, I'm just going to reread verse 13 for that first word. It says, is any among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone among you cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? 
then he should call for the elders of the church. He should request for prayer. This first line on the board, uh, it, says, it says first fruits. And in the Old Testament, first fruits are the thing that you brought at the beginning of the harvest. Before you even got the second bushel picked, you brought that, this, this first bushel to, Israel, to Jerusalem and you would offer it before God. And you would say, listen, I'm going to give God this part of the sacrifice because I don't know what the rest of my crop's going to look like. I don't know if I'm going to make 20000 30000 80000 100000 $500,000 this year, but I'm going to give the first 10 cents to God. You know what I'm saying? That's what the first fruits concept was. But this passage actually bounces off of that very idea. And it says that each of us has emotions, right? How many of you have had a moment of torture in your life? Not the sort that we worry about on CNN, but the sort of stuff that grabs you in your heart. Some moment where a kid tells you something or your husband or wife has told you something and you just your heart twists within you. There's a moment of pure torment. Something has gone horribly wrong. The question in that moment is, who do you call? Who's the first phone call when you go into pain? When you hear that somebody has cancer, when you hear that somebody has betrayed you in a specific way relationally, what is the first thing you do? Most of us have some sort of person. We have this, this, this first call response to in that moment. It's kind of like the 911. I know uh, you, you can pick on me about this later, but my mom and I are very close. It's very easy for me to just pick up the phone and say, hey, mom, guess what just happened? You know, whether it's a tortured moment, whether it's a terrible moment, or whether it's a cheerful moment, and I'm experiencing a great moment, the first thing I want to do is call the people closest to me. I call Shelby, I call Tim, I'll call my mom, I'll call these people. What God says is before we do, with, do anything else, what he wishes for is to hear from us. He wants the first fruits of even our emotions. Did you ever think that you're not supposed to just tithe from your checks, from your money? You're actually supposed to tithe the internal part of your life. Prayer is the way by which we go to God and we say, I'm going to give over this part of my life to you and I'm going to give the first thing. So this, this moment of great joy, I'm going to say, thank you, Lord. I'm going to praise the Lord. This moment of great pain, I'm going to say, oh, Lord God, I don't know if I can take it. I don't know if I can stand it. This, is, this hurt is more than I can bear. Whatever it is that we face in life, God wants to hear from us first. And it's truly because he thinks he's supposed to be the closest person to us. That's hard for us to believe. We've walked through such separation historically. But this, this first fruits idea is that we, if we give the first fruits of our emotional lives to God, we develop a connectedness with him that it, it's accomplished by nothing else. If God's the fifth person you talk to after a great dramatic moment, what does that say about God in your life? I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just saying this is what James saw when he was looking at the early church in this passage. He's saying, you know, we need to become people who give our hearts to God completely. We need to become people who give the first part of us to God, not the last part. He doesn't want the last 10%. He wants the first 10% because that says that we trust him more than I trust my mother, more than I trust my wife, more than I trust the people of this church. I trust the living God. First word, first fruits. The second word, request, and the third word, confession. I need to talk about these. The confession probably has you scared. You're, you're, you're thinking there's a little booth out back. And we do have a shed, and uh, I nominate Pastor Bob to sit in it, and we can all head back there and confess what we've done in the last, in the last week, and you can tell him. And, Bob, you'll tell everybody at the Maori Latch on Monday morning, right? Yeah. Of course. Confession is something that we have a specific set of ideas around in our world, and uh, that's not really what 
what Peter has in mind. Uh, he doesn't think you're supposed to confess to me or Pastor Bob or a priest. He actually thinks that confession is something completely different. It says that if you were sick, we're supposed to request prayer. Last week we had a service, and for those of you who are sick or had a relational difficulty or any number of different issues, some people seeking direction, we prayed, and, and frankly, I was astounded at how many people came forward. It was a great moment. I believe it was a great moment for our church. I know it was a great moment for me, and I was one of the prayers. But to sit there and have people come forward and share the hurts of their life, confidentially just asking for God's prayer, to anoint, for, for them to be anointed with oil. It was an amazing moment. And you know, it started me thinking. It started me thinking that factually we live lives alone. And these two words, these two words are words that keep us from living life alone. When we have hurts, if what we do is we say, we're not just going to pray to God, we're actually going to call other people into our lives to pray with us, now we don't hold those hurts alone. Now whatever it is, whether it's a sickness, whether it's a difficulty with a child, whatever it might be, we now are holding those in tandem with other people. Some prayer requests can't be handled in a community. We understand. I understand that some people aren't going to fill out those prayer requests, and you're not going to tell me the deepest part of your hearts for me to pray over in front of our whole congregation on Sunday morning. But, you know, God wants us to share with at least some close people in our lives. I I was listening to NPR this week, and they were talking with this guy, and he... uh, 60 years ago, roughly, was convicted of murder. And he was in jail. And for first, he was, a, he was sentenced to death. And so he was in isolation. And for several decades, he was waiting for the chair. The, the death sentence, and I don't even remember what state he was in, but he was waiting for this capital crime to be executed. And he thought that his life was going to end. And they, the courts continued to fight back and forth. He went through six different trials. And at the end of it, and it sounded very appropriate, they realized he, he didn't intentionally kill anyone. It was manslaughter. It was almost not quite accidental. He was certainly in the wrong place at the wrong time. But he had gone through several decades in this cell. And it was six by eight. And he lived in that cell every, every day, seven days a week, all year long, except for 15 minutes twice a week. Okay? Can you imagine living in just a cell six by eight for all but a half an hour in a week? And in that half an hour, he had to get his showers and he had to wash his clothes. And that was it. Never saw another human being besides the guards. He said it changed him. And as he talked on the radio, you could hear it change him. By the time they realized he was only guilty of manslaughter, he had already, he had already lived out two sentences of what would be a manslaughter, uh, what would be a manslaughter verdict. Um, he had actually lived through this thing twice over and then come out, and that's why they were interviewing him on the radio. But I thought about that. He talked, he said, you know, people aren't meant to be alone. He said, it's just not right. There's something about that six-by-eight cell. It changes you. The only person that you can see is you. The only person you can hear is you. And truthfully, the worst company you'll ever keep in your life is you. And he said it just like that. And I thought, you know, what if I didn't have Shelby? What if I didn't have these kids? What if I didn't have this church? What if I didn't have the community around me, the people who call me, the, 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 the people who seem to want to be engaged in my life? What if all that was gone? And then I realized that there have been moments in my life when I have held back the concerns of my life. There have been moments when I haven't shared those things. I have a temptation, and you heard me talk last week about Gloria Shaner praying for me and Joyce Oberholzer praying for me, and you heard me talk about that. It was tempting for me in that moment to hold that prayer request kind of to myself. And Joyce and Gloria broke down my doors and said, hey, you're not going to put the walls up between us and you. We're going to pray for you. Remember that story? There is this sense in me 
there's this sense in me that God wants us to communally hold the interior parts of our lives. It may not be 20 other people. It may just be one other person. But we're supposed to seek prayer. This week, this past week, I had, a, I had my, my stomach continued to get worse after that Sunday night prayer. And whatever happens, you, you hear these stories, whatever happens, when I pray for other people, something goes wrong with me. I'll just admit it, okay? I'll, I'll tell you. So I was up here praying for any number of you, and by Thursday morning, I thought, I have got to see a doctor. It was so bad, I drove right to the doctor's office. I didn't call him. I went to the doctor's office, and I said, listen, I need to see you today. And they said, we can see you at 11.15. And not surprisingly, what they diagnosed me with was an ulcer. But as I was driving there, I was convicted. I was thinking about this passage. I was thinking about Tim's sermon last week. And I thought, okay, nobody knows. You know, of all the people who got anointed with oil and prayed over in this church last Sunday night, you know who didn't? Me. You know, and I never said a word. My stomach's hurting the whole time, and I just kind of plow on. I'm a guy. That's how we are. You know, we're tough. We don't need medical help, and we don't need prayer. Well, that's not so much true. And I thought, okay, who's my deacon? Todd Yeager. And I called him. On, the, on my cell phone, on the way to the doctor, Shelby was with me. I called him, and I said, Todd, I need prayer. I'm sick, and something's wrong, and I can tell. It's not just a little something. something it's not the flu, you know. I'm, I don't have a cold. There's something wrong with my stomach. And it was, it was just amazing, the, the, the peace that happened because I asked for prayer. Now, these two words, they take the boundaries of our lives. These two words take the boundaries of our lives, and they include other people instead of exclude other people. This is counterintuitive for us. We don't think anybody else should know about our financial status. We don't think anybody should know about our health status. We don't think anybody should know about the secret sin in our lives. You know, the Bible doesn't tell us that you get forgiven because you confess your sin to another human being. That's not true. I mean, if I tell you the secret sins of my heart, I'll be no more forgiven because I confess them. You know what it does? It gets away the guilt. It has it communally held. When I have gone to a brother and said, listen, I am struggling with this, and I need you to pray for me because I'm struggling with this secret this or this troubling that, I come before them, and we come together before God, and there's power in two or three people gathered together for prayer. And so James says, listen, don't just pray alone. And maybe don't put it out in front of the masses, but when you come to God, maybe you should bring a brother. And maybe you should be completely honest with that person you trust. Confessing your sin, just dropping it, so you're not stuck in a six-by-eight cell by yourself in your interior life. That's so easy for us to do, to put up the walls around us and to sit in those areas and say, nobody else could understand what I'm going through. Nobody else can understand why I'm feeling this temptation. Nobody else can understand this pain in my life. Don't sit there in that six-by-eight cell, says James. Offer it up. Live it out. The community of Christ, the body of Christ, is not the body of Christ if we all sit isolated in our own little spots. Do you understand what I mean? We're supposed to be sharing each other's burdens. We're supposed to be carrying each other's loads. And that requires absolute honesty, at least on a minimal sense, in order to accomplish. We live lives that are all together too often alone. Third, well, those are the second and third words. The, the fourth word, there were these people in the ancient world, they were called the tzaddik. Believe it or not, and you know I like Hebrew, and so I'll pull some out for you this morning. Tzaddik is a Hebrew word. It literally means righteous. And when the Bible talks about Joseph, remember Jesus' stepfather, Mary's husband Joseph, or 
almost her husband when Jesus is, is brought into the world or, or, or about to be brought into the world. Joseph is called a tzaddik, and it's because he is a category of righteous men. You know, there, there are these stations in every society, right? There's the priest and there's the Levite in the ancient world. But if you weren't of the tribe of Levi, if you weren't one of the Jews who were of the specific tribe of Levi, you really couldn't become a priest. You couldn't become the, the sort of person who's a religious authority. So if you wanted to become somebody of repute in the religious world, you decided to become one of these. And these guys followed the rules. They always were in the Sabbath, or I'm sorry, in the synagogues on Saturday. I missed the you. They're, they're, they're always in the, in the sort of church experience, and they're very, very much engaged in what it means to be a righteous person. They're living according to the rules. And this passage says something interesting about these people. The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That's me reporting or recording or repeating for you the old King James that I grew up with. Do you believe that this morning? The prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The person in our world who sets himself apart to God and says, I'm not going to be a part of this sort of thing. And maybe it's not even an immoral act. Maybe it's not that we're setting ourselves apart from all the evil of this world. We're actually just setting ourselves apart to be people of prayer. Instead of going to this or that movie or this or that entertainment experience, we're growing in our experience of God. And we're becoming a righteous person, a person set apart for him. That's literally what that word means. It means that we are set apart for God. And it means that when we set ourselves apart, we are people who are people who pray. Last night was a night of conflict in our house. I'll just tell you, uh, it, it was a terrible night. It wasn't Shelby and I. I don't know who it was. But our neighborhood was just ringing. Shelby was asleep. I was up. And I could just hear people shouting. I mean, just screaming. And, and, I, I thought, and I couldn't even tell who it was. I couldn't tell you which side of our house it was on, if it was across the street. But the yelling, there was some young woman, there was some man. I'm looking around, looking out the windows. It's past midnight, and I'm up wondering, you know, this is the sort of stuff that happens. And I, I thought, well, I'll just go back to my book and mind my own business. And it occurred to me about 30 seconds later that, you know, why am I in this neighborhood if I'm just reading a book at this moment? Somebody is facing a crisis right now. I'm set apart in this room, and my wife, for whatever reason, is peaceful and upstairs asleep, and I'm just sitting on my couch, can't sleep, reading a book. I should stop and I should pray. Now, this sounds funny. Maybe it sounds hokey, but I stopped, and I sat there, and I said, okay, Lord God, whoever those people are, there is a, there is a dark moment in their life, and the screaming is including words that I wouldn't use, and this, this pain that's happening in their lives is profound. I said, bring them peace. Just bring them peace, Lord. Whatever it is, it can't be this bad. This crisis, just move them past it. They had been yelling for about 20 minutes, and, and the yelling continued for another 30 seconds, and, and I kind of went back to reading my book after I prayed that prayer, and then I was stopped. It's gone. The yelling just stopped. It's like peace prevailed in the neighborhood all over again. Now, I know that sounds hokey, and I'm not telling you that the immediate prayer was there, but I think that one of the reasons why we live where we live is because we're called to be people set apart for prayer. You know, there are things we do that, that would keep us from prayer, and there are things we do that when we get that phone call that says, I need prayer, we can't offer it because we're just in a place where our hearts are in the wrong spot. You know what I'm talking about. You've been there where somebody's called you and you said, well, I, I, I'll pray tomorrow, but tonight I can't do it. We need to live in a position where others can call upon us, where each other, anybody from this church, can come to us and say, hey, I need a moment of prayer. 
You know, it, it was a real blessing to call Todd Yeager, as I told you about, and have him, and, and I left a voicemail. You know, he's at work, working hard at Johnson & Johnson, and he calls me back and he says, you know, I, what is it? I, I want to pray for you. And he, it, it probably took him only about 15, 20 minutes, but even in the middle of a busy workday, he took time out from me. And he was my righteous man at that moment, the guy who I needed to talk to about going to the Lord in prayer. It's a fascinating moment for me because it's a vulnerable moment. You know, as pastors, we think we're not supposed to have to do that, you know? We think we're not supposed to admit when we have a moment like that. But the fact is we have to admit it. And maybe we should be not just people who do admit it, but people who are the first to admit it. Because what is the most prevalent sin in this category of our world is that we hold back, that we hide, that we leave this stuff out. There's a final word, or a final set of words, normal nature. And, and in the time of James, it's hard to overestimate how people thought of the Old Testament prophet Elijah. They thought he was the most amazing guy. They had one religious feast every year that was that shone above all others. It was called the Passover that celebrated the, the Egyptian exodus when the people of Israel were called out of Egypt. And remember, the firstborn were killed and all that. And the Passover remembered that. Do you know that even today, but back then as well, the Jews would have this meal called the Passover dinner, and they would leave a, a, a chair empty at the end of the table. Have you ever heard this? Do you know that that chair is for? It's for Elijah. Because the Old Testament prophet Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, prophesies that Elijah will come back before the Messiah. And Jews today, not believing the Messiah has come, not believing in Jesus, still leave that seat open thinking, maybe this year at Passover, Elijah will suddenly appear at the end of our table. I, I went to one of those Passover dinners once, and I saw that empty chair, and I thought, what in the world is that? What, why? And they actually put food on it, you know? I mean, there's, there's a plate, and there's this whole setting, and you've got to pass. It's kind of awkward. You have to pass the, the potatoes past Elijah, you know what I'm saying? And uh, he, he doesn't really pass. Anyway, th th that's the idea. Um, the normal nature of Elijah was something that James wanted to tell us about because they thought of this guy as absolutely supernatural. You can't ever be a prophet like Elijah. You're not really that amazing of a guy. You're just a normal person. And James says, hold on, stop. There are no non-normal people. Everybody's normal. The real question is, are you willing to trust God? It's not about whether we're normal or amazing. There's nothing amazing about Elijah. He prayed, and the rain stopped for three and a half years. Then he prayed again, and the rain came back. You ever think about this? God is calling us to be people of prayer. And what, what James says is, listen, there's nobody too small. There's, no, there's nobody insignificant in the mind of God. Any person can come before the throne of God and just say, hey, I'm a guy just like Elijah. He, he had the same number of chromosomes as I do. What I need to do is pray. He prayed and something happened. I'm going to pray and something's going to happen. You know, what's amazing in this church is that we have prayed. Periodically, we have prayed. We have gone before God. We have brought something to him. And it's not always been the answers we've wanted. Often it has. Frankly, it has. At times, we've seen healing. At times, we've seen abundant prayer. The fact that this building is paid for is, is, is a sign more that God's, God's responding to prayer than it is to the fact that he's providing financially, I believe. When this church prays, amazing things happen, not just, not just small things. And it's not because we're amazing people. As you look at me, I'm not a surprisingly amazing person. Wouldn't you agree? And as I look at you, you look like the normal people I spend my week with. I like you, but we're normal. But when we pray and when we pray together, God does more. I can't explain it. I don't tell you why. It's because he chose to work this way. So 
First fruits, are you giving God the first part of your emotional life? Whatever you're feeling today, does God know it before your wife, before your best friend, before your mom or your dad, before your kids, whatever it is, are you calling God before you call everybody else? Are you sharing the hurts of your life with one or more other people who can come beside you in undramatic, just faithful prayer? Are you confessing your sins to at least one other person? There are these secret hidden sins that we walk through life with, kind of separated from everybody else in this existence, saying, well, nobody else deals with this one. This is just too bad. This one's one of those scandalous sins that our society has marked off as absolutely so evil that if I share it, they'll never look at me the same way again. Find a brother. Find a sister. Share that thing with somebody you can trust. Somebody who will keep it confidential, but somebody who can walk beside you carrying the burden. Are you walking according to the plan of God for your life so that you're a righteous person whom other people can call on to pray? The moments of peace that you have are moments that you can share with another person by praying for them. If God has brought you to a place where life is genuinely peaceful, where things are pretty good, where life is just moving along according to plan, well then by all means come alongside somebody who's not because we have an overabundance of people who are in crisis not just in this church, in this neighborhood, in this region. There are people who are damaged and who need a brother or sister to walk alongside them and care for them. Lastly, lastly, do you feel like you need to be a super Christian in order to pray? The answer is absolutely not. There's nobody in this room who's a super Christian. You know, in our journey group, I'll just tell you this one last example. If you're in our journey group this last week, Bob Phoebe and I got into it. We, and, and Bob's a great one to get into it with. Uh, if you know Bob, he's really fun. And he, he keeps calling me. that He says, you're a man of God. Oh, brother. Man of God, yeah. I, that's what he refers to me as. You know the person who matters in this church? You know the person? The person who's behind me. The person who's Jesus Christ. We would see no man but Jesus Christ. There is no human being, not a pastor, not an elder, not a deacon. There is no human being that makes nearly the difference in this church that Jesus Christ does. Every other human being is just a normal person. Bob, your, your famous line, Bob Latchaw, I'm sorry. You, you'll never, you've got to tell me this line. You'll never, you'll, you're, an ego trip will never take you to two places. Tell it to me again. An ego trip will never get you to the Maori Latchaw Hardware or Parker Ford Church, right? Isn't that what you told me when I became pastor? That, that was Bob's first level of advice for me as a new pastor. An ego trip will never get you either to the Maori Latchaw Hardware or Parker Ford Church. That's really true. An ego trip won't get you to God either. Normal people who have faith get to God. People on an ego trip, well, he doesn't want to hear from those people. Elijah was a normal person just like you. Elijah was a normal person just like me. And God, his God, our God, wants to hear from us. Tim's going to come and share the rest of the message. So uh, we have this spiritual toolbox over here, the tool bench. And uh, Matt Willauer helped us set this whole thing up to give us a visual for what it is that we're walking through in this series right now. It's just to help us get a picture of how God's working on our lives and he gives us these tools to help work it out. This is not a shameless advertisement for Mary Latchell Hardware Store. Um, th this is actually an advertisement for God and his work in our hearts. And uh, we're excited about the fact that God continues to sanctify us, to work on our hearts, to change us. And he uses all these tools and he gives us tools of faith to allow that grace that's within us to be worked out into different areas of our life. Prayer, as we've been talking about the last two weeks, is the primary discipline, the first discipline, the discipline in our up 
part of our relationship with God. In the realm of prayer, there's a number of different things that we can do in prayer to pursue God. And he walks us through these. Three that we have listed up here are fasting, journaling, and rest. Fasting, journaling, and rest. Uh, so I just want to give you a minute on each of these, which, which, what each of these is and how they work themselves out in our life. First of all, fasting. You remember that woman, Anna, in Luke chapter 2? Anybody remember Anna in Luke chapter 2? Yeah, Anna, she was a woman who was waiting for the Messiah, right? There was Simeon and Anna, and she was waiting for the Messiah, and it said that she had been married for 10 years, and then she lost her husband. She spent the rest of her days after that in the temple, worshiping, praying, and fasting. And when Jesus, as a little infant, came to the temple, it says that right that moment, she walked up and she saw and started praising God. How did Anna know this was the Messiah? How did Anna know this was the Messiah? I believe the reason she knew that this was the Messiah was because her spirit inside of her became alive in the moment that she was around Jesus. And the reason that her spirit was so alive was because she was a woman who was accustomed to worship, prayer, and fasting. You remember what, when they came to Jesus and they said, how come John's disciples do all this fasting and your disciples don't do any fasting? And Jesus says, the bridegroom's here. It's time to party. It's time to enjoy the presence of the bridegroom. We're having a celebration. You don't fast during a wedding feast. You know the bridegroom's here. But there's going to be a day when the bridegroom is not here. And on that day, they will fast. When there's something missing, we fast. When we need more, we fast. Because we all too often fill what appears to be need in our stomach. And with all sorts of other things. And then we feel content but we're still missing something, but we don't feel, feel the discontentment. Fasting is the act of discipline that says, I need more. The bridegroom is not here in the fullness of what he needs to be. And Anna, she knew it, and she fasted because she knew there was something missing. And when that something came, the hunger caused by the fasting in her life was fulfilled when she was able to taste the bread of life in this little infant who came to her. Fasting is very important for us to engage in because we don't have everything that we need. And we need to make sure that we know that and that our spirits become alive in the, in the act of prayer of fasting. Fasting from food, fasting from media, fasting from all sorts of stuff. Rest. Rest. Name for rest in the scripture. Anybody have another name for rest in the scripture? Meditate. Meditate. Another word? Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath all across the scriptures is something that we were called to. Perhaps the greatest single practical thing that God put in our life in prayer, Sabbath. What happens on the seventh day of creation? God rested. Why did he rest? Why did God create all this stuff and he created man on the on the sixth day, men and women, to, to take care of everything. But then what's the seventh day all about? This is actually what it was all made for, wasn't it? I mean, at the end of the day, we can run around and we can take care of the world and do all the stuff we're supposed to do. But unless you connect with God on that seventh day, unless you get the relationship working, then what's the point? 
The whole point of him creating us anyway, he wants to enjoy that relationship with us. Rest is the discipline in our life where we let go of all the stuff, where we let go of doing everything we've got to do and worrying about everything we've got to worry about, and we build into our lives a rhythm where we retreat and we just get with God. Uh, I, I remember my dad tells this story uh, about my brother and I were at the shore with him one time, and he, had, he was telling us some story about his computer and, um, and how something went wrong. And he's like, you know how when this happens and this happens and you have to turn, the, turn it off and reboot it? And my brother and I both have Macintoshes and not PCs. And we looked at each other and we said, no, we've never really experienced that problem. And he, you know, he was like, all right, whatever. And, but the, the truth is, is in the average computer, after a while, the computer just gets a little jumbled um, and you have to power it off. And then when you power it back on, it kind of reboots the system. Rest is the moment where we just get back with God, and we've been confused by all the stuff and responsibilities, but we just get back with God and we rest. In my own life, I've had, uh, I've had to set this to be a very serious discipline. I will just go and go and go and go without ever resting. And my, my family, it'll drive them nuts. It'll drive everybody else nuts around me because I'll just keep going. But I've had to build in disciplines. At the last church I was at, uh, Galen, the senior pastor there, he said, look, you better figure something out in your life where you find a way to just get away and be with God and rest and stop doing stuff. And so I built in every month I had a day of solitude where I'd take one of my work days and I would just go out into the middle of nowhere and I'd take a, a Bible with me and I'd take a journal with me and nothing else. You know, and all I could do is hang out with God that day. And oh man, the first few hours of that were so incredibly painful. You know, because all I could do is think about all the other stuff I had to do. You know, but it became those moments where my heart and my spirit would reboot and I'd reconnect with God. And you know how he tells us when we pray to pray in the name of Jesus and we're supposed to pray the prayers that he would want us to pray? How can we do that unless we allow our hearts to soak up the presence of God? And we can go and go and go but we need to take the time to sit and rest. The last thing is journaling. And journaling, if you look around, uh, read the books of those who have prayed, uh, written the books on prayer, who have seen God do great things in prayer, as you see pillars of faith throughout the history of the church, you'll find that so many of these people journaled. Journaling is a thing that the scriptures doesn't talk much about. It's just a discipline that we find many of the people who have been uh, prayer warriors throughout history have worked hard at journaling. And I believe the reason is, is because as Josh talked about first fruits, sometimes it's easier to get on the phone with someone because you can hear their voice on the other end or, or to talk to someone because you can see their eyes and how they respond. Journaling puts flesh to the conversation with God. You write it out. You know, and you can see it happening. It becomes more conversational. What's more is that journaling does something spectacular. In my own journals, since I left to go to Moody 15 years ago or something like that, uh, that ever since then I started journaling, and I have stacks of journals. I have journals all over the place of things, pages that I've filled up. And one of the things that I learned early on is, is I'd take a black pen, and any request I had from God, I'd write in black. And then I'd take a red pen, Anytime I saw God give an answer to that prayer, and I'd write it in red back where I wrote in black. I cannot tell you how much red ink is spilled all over the pages of my journals because of the red blood that was spilled on a cross. And it's unbelievable to be able to look back and to watch what God has done in my life and has done across the history of the last 15 years of my life, all just because I wrote it down. 
God says all across the pages of Scripture, remember, he uses the word remember all the time, remember, remember what I've done for you. Because when we know and experience what God's doing in our lives, it keeps us focused. It allows us to know that he's right here with us. And in the moments of despair, we can look across the pages of our journal and say, oh, good God, look at what you've done in my life. Journaling is, uh, journaling is a thing that has transformed my life. And I would urge you to go out this week, and if you have your takeaway tools here in the, in the middle of your, um, I, I want to remind you of these too, in the, in the middle of your bulletin, we give you takeaway scriptures that are for reading. Uh, we put some scriptures in there you might want to memorize sometimes. And then we have daily exercises for connecting. And these are things to help practically embed this, this, this uh, lesson that we've gone through. And one of the things in here is to say, go out, buy a nice journal, Decide what you're going to do with this journal and set aside a time in your day when you're going to write in it. This isn't journaling just, this is what I did today. This is conversation with God. It's what it is. And it's putting flesh to the conversation with God. Setting aside a time and saying, you're going to be the one who I communicate with this stuff about. You know, the biggest book in our Bible is the Psalms. And the Psalms are about 90% the journals of King David. That's what they are. And we get to see the beauty of what God did all because this man wrote down in just bold, open honesty his conversations and his relationship with God. So when it comes to prayer, these are just a, a few things that help us. Fasting, because we, we know we need to yearn for more. Rest, because we need to reboot and get reconnected and just hang out with God and enjoy that seventh day. And then journaling helps put flesh to it all. The confession the remembrance, the gratefulness, the thanksgiving, the answered prayers, all of those things, we can write them down and we can remember them and we can look back. Just a few practical things. I've found these tools to be really helpful for me personally in my own spiritual life. I'm going to close this in prayer. Do you have a benediction or do you want me to give a benediction? All right. I'm going to close this in prayer and then release us with a benediction. God, we thank you and praise you. You have been so good to us. You've been really faithful. We thank you for Josh's message to us today. We thank you for James chapter 5 and how it speaks to us about prayer. Thank you that you give us access to enter into the Holy of Holies and have communication with you. It brings us power to accomplish all the things that you ask us to be about in your kingdom, but even more, it brings us presence of your, your, uh, yourself in our lives and it fills us with fulfillment to be in, in communication with you. So all of those things, God, we thank you and we praise you for. In Jesus' name, amen.